0: This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop and now it's time to decentralize hello and welcome you've landed on the tgif dc gathering here on clubhouse live every friday or you might be listening on the Decentralized Podcast, on your favorite podcast platform. Either way, welcome. You're joining this week for a conversation on resilience and resilience frameworks and clinical trials. And what even are we talking about? Well, to me, I think a lot of this conversation leans into the predictable, unpredictable things in the world today. And when we're starting up a clinical trial, in January of 2024, and we think it's gonna run for two years globally. What are all those factors that are going to stand in the way of a research participant being able to reliably and predictably get to a research site for access to investigational medicine, to be able to share data on efficacy and safety and enable other types of important measurements to take place? Well, we're gonna have a great conversation on that with our friend, Dr. Aditi Hazra from over at Harvard and the VA up in Boston. But before we do that, this is our first gathering now that we're uh, back into the new year. So it seems, a uh, Jane, um, we can still say happy new year, right? I mean, I've spoken to you, but happy new year, Jane.
1: And Happy New Year to you, Craig, and everyone who's here with us. I think you can say Happy New Year as long as you want to. Guys, <laughs> guess what? The calendar is not the same across cultures.
0: There we go. Let's keep that going. And, uh, you know, there's so much to cover and, you know, there's so much for us to talk about. And I'm really excited to see the schedule already really filling in for these friday gatherings on with a host of different topics in the queue over the next few weeks um, for folks that enjoy joining us live keep it up be sure to keep um, following us on linkedin and uh, and twitter slash x and we'll keep sharing updates on what that gathering is that's coming up in the in the upcoming week remember if you're listening via podcast and you want to join us live it's just a click into the uh, Clubhouse app every Friday 12 to 1. The folks that join us here live um, in our audience, uh, we we chat with them live throughout the session and we look forward to them jumping up on stage in the second half of our session to share their, their questions, their experiences, their feedback on the topic. But that doesn't work for everybody, either because of time zones, work commitments or otherwise. And, for others, they enjoy maybe listening to us at 1.5x in the car, and for that reason, the decentralized podcast is a great one to follow. Whether you're uh, on the uh, the Apple Podcast app or um, Spotify or wherever you like to listen, uh, Amir, what did I what did I miss as we get things going here today?
2: Um, as usual, didn't miss anything, but I would just say just two things to get us going. One is. Um, If anyone uh, is interested, they should definitely look up um, Craig's LinkedIn um, feed. He has a great post on sort of thoughts for this beginning of the year. I thought they were really, uh, you know, rounded and really well written. So I recommend you look at that if you haven't. And then um, just to kick us off, I guess, when I thought about this topic uh, beforehand, Craig, and I'm really looking forward to uh, speaking with our guest, um, is that, you know, obviously the pandemic really showed up kind of the issues with resilience in clinical trials. But I think since then, whether it's wars or other things that have been going on, all I ever hear from my friends, you know, running trials is that it's a real challenge that we really haven't solved for at all. And our resiliency is really challenged and is going to be challenged going forward. So it's a very important topic and I'm really glad we're addressing it.
0: It, it's it's a great point because I, I feel like in our industry, pre-pandemic, we did talk about disaster preparedness and, you know, what happens when the data center is offline and what happens if there's a, a computer hack uh, that takes the systems down. But I feel like this is maybe it's an extension, maybe it's an adjacency. And so I'm really looking forward to to getting into that together with Aditi, some of you may know uh, Aditi's name from our annual meeting. Uh, She was instrumental in bringing in a tremendous and important patient voice into our conversation as Aditi was able to uh, link in um, and, and enable us to really put together an awesome video with an investigator and a patient who could share their story about being impacted by the war in Ukraine and how that affected a young woman's clinical trial participation, as she was um, cut off from her research site and um, needing to um, to to leave the country, um, and how the investigators? were able to step up and make sure that there was continuity for her um, both within the country when she couldn't get to the site as well as continuity for her as she transitioned um, from Ukraine to Poland and so that story was really downstream of Aditi's great you know visibility expertise and connectivity in this uh, in this on this topic. very grateful to have you here Aditi welcome.
3: Thank you, Craig and everyone. It's a delight to be here.
0: So for folks who have not had the pleasure before, Aditi, share a little bit about your, your work and your background and maybe what's led you down this particular topic this week.
3: Absolutely. So I'm a cancer researcher and I am currently at the Harvard Medical School and trained at the Harvard School of Public Health. My journey to this topic started when I was doing my PhD in Houston at MD Anderson Cancer Center. We experienced floods and hurricanes and had to continue care for our patients as well as studies that were ongoing. So imagine you're given a 30 minute warning to leave your home, what would you pack? The studies show that people across the US do not prioritize packing their prescription medicines. People cannot prioritize their own health when they're prioritizing survival. Medicines, IP, are left behind. This was my own experience during Hurricane Harvey, and I describe her experience as well as some digital solutions for for those displaced in climate events and op-ed in 2022. And it is this experience that to meet patients that are not just where they are, but that are on the move, patients on the go, that informed my volunteer work during the pandemic and during uh, conflict crises. So for participants that are displaced by climate change, it is important for us to prepare for both that increased health burden. And we can do that by doing a resilience risk assessment for our trial And there are resources available to facilitate that, two that I've included in the chat, one from the FDA in September 2023 on considerations of the conduct of clinical trials during major disruptions due to disasters or public health emergencies. The second from the European Medicines Agency also includes guidance for patient transfers, which is what enabled Anastasia's story from a patient in Ukraine being transferred in Poland. And so both of these guidelines prioritize patient safety. I think we can all agree that that is paramount and that the purpose of the clinical trial is to provide the investigational product in a a safe and decentralized manner. And, And that was shown that it's possible during the pandemic and there are additional guidelines from Transcelerate I think where there are questions and we would benefit from conversation is, what are the possibilities to adapt the trial design while ensuring integrity and safety? And I think Ukraine and its neighboring countries not only showed it's possible to do a clinical trial, but they showed that it was possible to do oncology clinical trials without patients missing a single cycle of therapy. And so this this is what led me on this path and we published our experience in a letter in science as well as some digital solutions to bring the trial to the patient. And, And so what I'm thinking about is how can we integrate a resilience framework that talks about facility needs from a power bank, a generator, data digitization to also the connectivity on the participant side, um, whether that's Wi-Fi or digital connectivity, and and always ensuring the safety to also the partnerships with the Cancer Information Service or the um, emergency preparedness services in our local areas that can facilitate the continuity of care. So one is, is integration with our existing protocols to have a resilience plan Jackie Kent, who some of you may know, discussed having a plan in place to deliver medication to Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. And and I think that's a great example of what can be done if we are prepared. The second is we don't have to do this alone. There's partnerships with uh, mobile phone technology, internet providers that can facilitate Continuity. I, I've seen a commercial for Xfinity for storm ready Wi-Fi. I was like, why don't I have that now? Um, I, we are, Boston is expecting a snowstorm, so I would like to have storm ready Wi-Fi. So there's there's also individual hospitals that are thinking about this. There's um, budget in the Inflation Reduction Act to support carbon reduction, carbon emission reduction, while um, enhancing continuity. And I think digital technology, AI, can reduce the carbon footprint while increasing access. So we can do that through monitors, wearables, capillary blood assays. Um, These are some of the things that I've thought about, but I've sort of grouped this resilience framework, starting with a resilience risk assessment, from based on geography and examples of previous history of climate events in in that region. So we can look to see what are the patients that are at high risk, then prepare, and then send reminders if there is a pending emergency to remind them about the resources that are available to continue that connectivity. And what patients most ask for is, is the navigation in the aftermath of a crisis, whether that's a conflict or a climate crisis, how how to then access their healthcare if it's a new facility, if it's um, a local lab that they need to go to, but also then to connect them with partners, maybe using um, small language models with emergency services for food and shelter and clean water, depending on the emergency. There are clinics that have thought about Heat, um, heat, extreme heat plans, extreme cold weather plans, different types of emergencies that have been mapped out that can inform the clinical trial community. And, and so I'll stop there with that introduction, but, um, but that's what I'm thinking about in terms of resilience, the, the risk assessment, the reminders, the resources and the navigation piece.
0: When organizations are um, should be thinking about this, is is resilience the same as disaster preparedness? Are they complementary? Are they? Um, what What are your thoughts on that? Because I think that a lot of organizations think about disaster preparedness at an enterprise level, maybe not as much at a study level to do this type of of diligence that you're describing.
3: Yes, I think it's complementary. I think of resilience as being an umbrella term under which disaster preparedness is one type of crisis that could occur. There could be other types in addition to a natural disaster. So it is complementary to the existing disaster preparedness plans. It is complementary in the operationalizing of diversity and inclusion plans, in reducing the barriers for retention and continuity, so I think in many ways it is complementary.
0: Great, great. You know, there's so much about digital and decentralized that, you know, over the over the last um, couple of years, I've, I've really come to appreciate is a is a story about improving. Access and experience include in and in under the, those patient factors, including um, support for representative patients and studies. Um, there's this value proposition around resilience, um, being prepared for the uh, known unknowns that are, are out there. And then it's interesting to hear you also um, include in this conversation these um, opportunities for us to impact. Um, the 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 environmental impact of clinical research. Can we influence the the carbon impact of the procedures in our studies? Um, you know, sometimes we think about things like uh, clinical trials, and we'll say, well, there are three things we want, but you can only have two. Um, right? Time, cost, and quality. Y- you can't, you know, expect all. Th- to win in all three, you're gonna to have to compromise in something. Can we, do we have to compromise here? Or is it? does it really seem like some of these tactics that we're talking about can really help with all three, improving access, improving resilience, improving um, carbon impact?
3: So we have to prioritize patient safety. And when we make that the priority, then we are not making a compromise and And actually, the investment early on may reduce time, site burden, and, and and while improving quality in the long run.
0: jane, what are what are some of your thoughts based on what you're hearing so far? Do you want to get start to get uh, granular around some of the uh, elements of the framework that Aditi was mentioning?
1: Well, honestly, I'm kind of still back at one of Aditi's first statements and thinking about my family's go bag, Aditi, because I live in, a I, I live about 500 meters from the San Andreas fault line. So a go bag is real in our life. And you just pointed out some things that I need to put on a list that goes into the go bag. But it makes me wonder, like as we send out support materials for clinical trials, um, do we want to help our study teams know how to get that list ready for their own clinical trial go bag and and where would we help them get started?
3: Absolutely. I'm thinking of the on the go bag for my own family And in doing so, expanding to this clinical trial framework, I also looked at MCRT and other frameworks that are out there, other toolkits to sort of synergize. But I think that would be exactly the type of direction I'd like to see for us to have a conversation on what are the facilitators that we need to include in our go bag and and how can we Standardize that to provide that as a framework to to facilitate this because it, it may not it's not one size fits all. There's not one crisis that will be replicated, but certainly technology for continuity of connection, whether that's Wi-Fi, a mobile phone, that that is going to be important for risk mitigation for documenting offline adverse effects or, or anything that's, you know, really urgent. But um, but I think that's a great idea to kind of think of this as a an on-the-go bag and what are the facilitators that we need to pack it with.
1: And And it also makes me think, like, how do you help teams, study teams, get this on their minds? Because they're, as you know, they're dealing with 50 different balls up in the Air and Study Startup. So how do we make it easy for them to include this ball in the startup, knowing they don't necessarily need to deploy it on day one?
3: I think we could start with um, maybe a sort of template that we co-create in a small group, a, a circle, if you will, the diversity circle here, and, and maybe start with a version one that we share with teams or or a specific site that would be interested in piloting the benefit of having a framework like this. And then we can iterate. And once it's improved, help teams by by sharing the best practices. Oh, I love that
1: idea, of course, and and it's a great strategy. I'm also thinking a little bit uh, further upstream and thinking, Aditi, since you have really devoted time to this, what would you advise in terms of practicalities when study teams, and these are cross-functional, are thinking about building optionality into their trial protocols to accommodate resilience? And the reason that comes to my mind is During the pandemic, of course, there were all sorts of protocol amendments to back end the resilience in. So how do we get ahead of it without making it complicated within the protocol itself? Is there a template or are there language tools that you would send people to use or
3: how are people thinking about that? I think that's a great question. I think both the FDA and the EMA guidelines provide a priority of patient safety as the anchor and then if we start from there and we think about what are some metrics that we can prepare on perhaps if it's geographically based trial what would be evacuation routes what would be partner facilities what are the um, opportunities to partner with local labs in that area often federally qualified health centers serve patients in in crises, but may not have the resources. So we can partner with community hospitals, it could be a win-win. For example, Um, if we know in advance, what are the referral pathways, the local labs, the local physicians that can help with continuity of care in a crisis. So I think that's that's one thing to map out is, is the referral pathways. Then, second is is this risk assessment. Are certain patients more at risk to a natural disaster based on their geographical location? Then we could prioritize having some resources and uh, technology support for for those individuals. Then the you know the cold storage of medicine I think is also important to think about. But um, but. The other place we can also think about is the data digitization that's there, the interoperability, and do we need to transfer patients um, if to another site? and if and if we can think about those few things, then I think that could help teams get started. But in terms of you know what what to pack and our to go bag, those are similar to what hospitals are also thinking about in terms of generators, portable chargers cooling equipment, heating equipment, air purifier, face masks, sanitizer, and clean water in most emergencies are necessities.
1: And then maybe this is too weedy, but have you seen efforts to accommodate for this resilience factor in the design so that proactively the protocol spells out you could do this visit in person or you could do it in telehealth, or do you think that's just opportunistic? So do you think people, not necessarily planning for resilience, but if they're building optionality into the protocol, is that going to help us achieve this resiliency?
3: If we build optionality into the protocol, I think it will enhance resiliency. What we have had to date in Ukraine is an adaptive design that allowed many trials to continue. Then during the pandemic, we did intentionally build in an adaptive design, and uh, we had some um, trials with vitamin D in, in both the US, Mongolia, and we had an adaptive design that allowed us flexibility and optionality built in. And that was very important in the completion of that study.
1: Well, those are great examples, and it's making me think a little bit about the FDA guidance, which recommends that you do overtly talk about which methodologies you want to use if you're going to use DCT options in your trial. So I'll I'll pipe down now, Craig.
0: Why, why would you do that? Amir, um, thoughts or questions on, on your mind based on the conversation so far?
2: I mean, I would love to also. Uh, at some point here, from uh, all the everyone else in the room, whether it's the site level, whether it's the farmer level, because I mean, obviously, historically, every protocol, you know, has a risk mitigation. You know, there's a risk assessment. and I think pre-pandemic. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't probably as robust as it should have been around. And thinking about natural disasters as, as much as we now realize with the pandemic, where it's kind of everything shuts down. I'm just curious to know from folks in the room you know what's happening in various organizations around that because it's clear you know i mean we clearly knew that countries may become involved in war but when when the ukraine war happened i know for a fact that many studies were severely impacted because there had many many sites in ukraine for instance but there was no backup plan there was no sudden You know, there were no other countries that could really make up so many programs were delayed because of that so clearly we haven't solved for you know how do we at scale kind of become resilient. Uh, so there's the kind of the individual patient level which we've all sort of raised at the moment, but there's also like how does this, how does the trial survive, right? There's the how does the patient survive, and there's also can the program survive?
0: Yeah. Yeah, these all these dimensions to uh, to consider in that that uh, in that framework. Well, it is um, halfway into the hour, and that's usually a point where we do a quick regroup. If there are any friends that have just joined us in the last few minutes here live on Clubhouse, welcome! You've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club. It's TGIFDCT, It's Friday at noon, and that's when we gather each week to discuss a range of topics related to improving research, research conduct through decentralized digital or other approaches. Um, if you're joining us here live, we're gonna open the mic and just open the floor in just a minute. Um, and certainly if you are uh, joining us through the podcast, always remember you can jump in on the live conversation um, every Friday. Well, we have a couple of friends who and uh, familiar faces who have some perspective on this week's topic. Uh, Nelson, I see you there in the room. Welcome, it's always great to hear your voice. Introduce yourself if uh, there are any folks who have not had the pleasure and share your thoughts on today's topic.
4: Hi everybody, I'm Nelson Rutrick. I own a few sites in the in the Boston and New York areas. Um, thanks for having me on. I. Um, I think this is an interesting topic. What what I've seen from the site side here, and I haven't had too many um, disasters or events sort of requiring much of this, but what we do see a fair bit uh, is, uh, I do a lot of Alzheimer's research and we run into these requests often that doesn't feel like it really calls on this topic, but a lot of people want to go for a few months To move to another site in Florida, then come back after their little vacation and the difference in how. Trials and drug companies are willing to accept that these um, participants are going to leave for a few months and can they transfer and for the most part. Drug companies sort of say we can't plan for somebody to swap sites. You have to just tell us. Prior to their very next appointment that they're either going to drop out or switch sites and then we have something in place to handle it and what we've sort of learned from this whole experience has been. um, There's not really a way around that drug companies sort of have to be forced to do it, but um, the next piece is that leads to some real havoc when you're. Uh don't know if people will be able to get their next dose um, or their next mri and you um, what we've found is giving away for participants to text or call one person to deal with is sort of the solution to nearly every problem um, and at most sites or most companies they don't have that person
2: so nelson i love the fact that you brought this kind of case up so it seems to me it was a, it's a really good test case of like in a non-disaster situation to test the adaptability of pharma, right? Can they be patient-centric, which they claim to be? And can they accommodate something like this, which will ensure a patient stays in their trial? And um, can you talk a little bit more about the spectrum of adaptability that you've seen uh, from pharma and whether that depends on size of pharma or anything like that? Can you comment on that too?
4: I I don't even think it's so size based. Actually, there's. um, It seems like whenever we run into. Issues with subjects transferring sites, at least. It's as though it's the first time a sponsor's ever heard about it, even though they get it several times per study, there's not a policy set forth and you're sort of winging it. Um, And they want to discourage the transfers because there are a lot of work and leads to problems so they're um so they don't want to be too accommodating for worries it would incentivize it i suppose i mean i don't know if, if that's really the thinking or if it's or what's going on well no, that's fascinating because if you're running a trial
2: in alzheimer's you have patients in northeast uh, apparently even as a foreigner here who you know came here i do realize the phenomenon that people are genetically predisposed to either retire to Florida or go there for the winter. So isn't it, isn't it amazing that despite this very well known phenomenon, we can't prepare for it? Yeah, so, I,
1: nothing. I don't think that it's because the pharma companies don't want to, they don't want to incentivize it. I think it's actually closer to what you mentioned, at least in my experience, there was no SOP on this. And so if it feels like each team is solving an individual, that may be true. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Sure. But I guess what I'm pointing out is um, it doesn't see it's not a surprising problem. Right. And you would think our incentives are to be able to, as much as possible, allow adaptability, which is our goal. I'm just pointing out that isn't it interesting that something that's is pretty predictable. It, it, it does point out that we don't have the mechanism to be adaptable to it, it sounds like right.
3: And this is this is actually where the European guidelines may be beneficial because they specifically had guidance for international transfers. And they made some mod- they all adopted some guidelines that allowed for a more streamlined transfer from patients from Ukraine they expedited the approval timeline they digitized the process and as nelson said there was 24/7 there was a 24/7 communication channel put in place for stakeholders to be able to reach a person in the territory of Ukraine for any any of the 451 patients that were transferred um, within country and internationally in 2022. So that, that reference might be helpful in thinking about how can we simplify the requirements and um, digitize the process and expedite approval.
1: I also think it's technically a little bit easier now than it was when we didn't have the sorts of digital tools we do now now that we can use telemedicine, now that we can use electronic data capture more readily and combine the data. So it is interesting to your point, Amir, that it hasn't been a more proactive focus
2: for teams to sort through. I guess what I'm pointing out is, as we all know, everyone likes to say our industry is patient-centric, but when you think about it, really, just like healthcare, the patient has to fit us as opposed to us trying to be helpful to patients so just to me it's an example where Nelson's bringing up a you know a case where it's kind of it's not a it's not an unusual disaster it's kind of pretty regular that people will move to Florida for a few months um, or maybe they're, they're planning to move there you know retire and how difficult it is for someone to switch you know, within the clinical trial, I understand all the logistical issues on the back end. I get that. I'm just saying it's an interesting case to just show we're really not so far that adaptive to be able to attract and retain patients, right?
0: And, Craig, and- what do you think? Yeah. It's, it, it's interesting, right? So, yes, we, we, we're not, we don't have resilient systems that let us. Be agile and give flexibility for patients. It's hard for us to enable choice and flexibility just between the paths of, of of a home visit versus a clinic visit. Nevertheless, the ability to shift from investigator site in New Jersey to investigator site in Florida and then bounce back to, uh, bounce back to New Jersey, is it because we're not embodying. The patient-centric rhetoric, or is it that we haven't sensed enough demand or risk to the business to not invest in putting that type of shifts in in, um, in processes in place? I think you know the, the 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 thing that I always find interesting about this topic of resilience is you know there. Um, it, if you can put things in place that solve a lot of different problems at once right you can extend the value of it right so if if you can have more flexibility around location does that give you the ability to engage more representative patients does it give you the ability to be more resilient does it give you the ability to impact your carbon footprint and your ESG objectives does it give the ability for nelson's patient to be able to shift down to florida for a period of time and come back are there you know are there enough wins from having that type of more agile flexible process in place that maybe for one of those wins, it would be a tough investment, but for all four of those, it it makes, it makes pushes it over the tipping point.
2: Right, know, in, in Craig, I can give you, and I'm sure Nelson could from a scientific point of view, 20 reasons why I could say no, right? From the site rating uh, being different at different sites, et cetera. Like there's a million scientific, the, where as you know, very good on industry, as scientists do, come up with all the reasons why it can't work, right? That's a classic, the stereotype that we are Uh, so there's plenty of reasons i could i completely understand why it can be challenging all i'm saying is i think it's a really interesting case that nelson brought because it gives us an opportunity to think through how can we be more adaptable and i agree technology will help a lot here uh, in a situation which isn't a, you know, a natural disaster or anything like that, but it's a, it's a sort of an example of where we could utilize this as a way of actually thinking about being more adaptable that may help us when there is actually a disaster. I guess is my point.
0: Let's keep this conversation going. Uh, I see our friend Archana is up here in the room, and remember, if you're uh, listening in right now and you have a question, experience, feedback on today's topic around resilience or even this location shifting, uh, feel free to raise your hand we'll bring you up here on stage like Nelson and Archana. Archana, welcome. Please come off mute, introduce yourself for friends who haven't had the pleasure, share your perspective on today's topic.
5: Hi, good morning and happy new year to everyone. Sorry, I missed the initial few minutes of the call today. but. Uh, you know i wanted to share um from my experience what i've seen is um pharma typically um sorry just a brief introduction i'm an independent advisor to the industry uh, having spent the past 30 years in um, pharma biotech as well as digital health companies and what i have observed it's almost um a reactive approach in most cases in the pharma side, uh, when disasters occur like this, and that's when you know we would allow patients to be transferred or we would be open to having those conversations with sites and CROs, et cetera. Um, I think what Amir is is talking about is, is is I I totally agree that even though pharma says we are very patient centric, it would um you know from a solutions perspective. What I've seen the two types of business continuity plans that have been put into place. One is at, let's say the organization level, how will the organization survive the disaster? The second is at a portfolio level. And the third is at an individual study level. And I have to point out that at the individual study level, it's oftentimes the CRO who is putting together the business continuity plan in, in consultation and in conjunction with the sponsor, but it's the CRO who's driving it because the CRO is conducting the trials at um, at the sites. And at the, at the organization level, it's always been the sponsor putting those business continuity plans. But they're usually after after a disaster has happened, not preventative, or you know, and I also agree with Jane's uh, point about it's more likely the SOPs don't exist. I remember, you know, long back when Katrina hit, and we had a lot of patients at that time in the Louisiana area, we had to put together new SOPs oftentimes to handle a lot of those cases. So from a solutions perspective, I think when we talk that it's a multi-pronged approach, I think it has to be when you put these plans together, resilience framework or business continuity plans, um, you have to think both at the portfolio level and the individual study level um, but also you have to think about from a patient level. In the United States, of course, you know, sending the, letting the patient go for a significant number of visits to another site, is also a loss of revenue for that original site. So I have actually been in conversations with PIs where I've seen there before they would, you know, well, they're assessing a candidates, so whether they're suitable to participate in a trial, they're also looking whether they this is a stable, can, uh, you know, patient who'll be able to come in for the visits or do the visits remotely. But luckily with the past five to eight years with the DHT technologies, the digital health technologies, um, that's becoming less and less more so on the minds of people uh, still there at the site level, but less from a sponsor side, uh, because now we have the tools to handle them. So I think from a, you know, uh, my advice to pharma sites um, and and the vendor people who develop these tools as well would be um, to make sure you have your uh, SOPs in a, in place in advance. Uh, you know this framework prior to your disasters and a plan of transfer of the patients. Uh, the revenue, how does that get impacted? And you know how would the patient's data be handled? How would the patient pathway be handled? And finally, how would the sharing of the revenue, you know, in the United States is a big deal. Um, So that's why I'm bringing that up. Of course, in Europe and in some other countries, it's not because of the nature of how the health systems are built. And therefore, you see more (laughs) patient-centric decisions being made outside of the US oftentimes than in the US. Um, I'll pause there if there are any other uh, follow-up questions.
1: Archna, I'm just going to chime in for a second and thinking back more recently to the pandemic, although Katrina is a good example too. The cost of not being proactive was immense to every trial, not just in terms of potential lost patient visits, data treatment, but also frankly, the cost to enable that resiliency mid-study was massive. So it's interesting if we could flip our thinking, into that proactive state to Craig's point maybe we would hit three or four of those objectives and get a cost reduction by doing so i don't know we'd have to try yes. it out
5: yeah and 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 i remember we had to sit and prioritize you know where uh, the studies as well which were the most um uh, you know where that would be the first ones retrospectively to make sure that the data doesn't get impacted and uh, with limited resources. And also in the just a few years ago, there was a shortage of saline everywhere. And at that time, I still remember we had to still again prioritize our trials and, and support the sites in terms of making sure the sites had the ability to have saline to administer intravenous drugs. Um, so it's, it's disasters like this where I, I think it behooves the sponsor world and also the sites, actually, to be honest, to have a some sort of a plan like this, but also be constantly every once a quarter or so, um, have a priority list as well in terms of uh, mitigation and should this disaster happen. This is a priority of how we would, uh, um, which programs we would um, jump on to make sure the patients um, are, are, are in a very patient centric way are not impacted or the data is not impacted. And the good news is, you know, to be honest, uh, we have the technology now to be able to, no matter where the patient wants to move, take the tests to wherever they are, the patients can easily be transferred in EDC, they can easily be shipped the medications, uh, they can easily be found uh, remote till telehealth visits, etc, all those capabilities. So it's no longer an excuse. Yes, it makes the life of the operations people more complex. Um, it makes uh, inspections and audits more complex, but uh, it, it behooves us to do that in the interests of the patient mindset.
0: It's interesting for us to think about these plans. You know, very often I I think about it through the lens of a sponsor. You should the research sponsor have a plan not just for their enterprise, but for for the specific protocol. You know, Nelson, it's interesting to think about it from the site perspective. What are the business continuity and resilience strategies that sites need to have in place across their enterprise and then you know Jane and Archana, as my Bay Area friends here, thinking about those go bags. What's the what's the level of preparedness and, and tools that we need to have for the patient or ready to to deploy to the patient in the event of emergency break glass? How do we get that go bag for their clinical trial to the participant in the event of that emergency? Expecting that, as Aditi mentioned when when a crisis happens and somebody is is heading for the door they're not thinking about their prescription medicine they're definitely not thinking about their clinical trial um, engagement or whatever tools or supplies they might have been given Um, so there's so many interesting layers here and Aditi in the context of the framework you really started to walk us through a bit of some some thinking about upfront planning and other dimensions here. Can you walk us back through some of the some of the elements of a good framework for resilience um, at each step in that planning and, and execution process?
3: Absolutely. And and I have drafted this more from a patient perspective, patient-level perspective, but but I think all the insights that have been shared from a site and sponsor level perspective are are important and I can start to integrate it. But for me, it starts with a resilience risk assessment at the time of the study design to identify where there might be risk in the trial, which patients might be risk and being able to then facilitate reminders as well as navigation when that risk happens I think are the two essential items that need to be in the tool bag. Every patient wants navigation at that time of risk. So if we want to retain the patient, if we don't want to lose the patient, that I think is very important. And I think we don't have to do that alone. We can integrate with emergency services to best be able to inform and and help the patient in that situation, whether they're relocating for a crisis, for um, Alzheimer's care in a warmer climate, to visit grandchildren, for whatever reason, the, the, we should be able to meet the patients where they are. In terms of a facility level, um, so there are some resources, You know, obviously, as you all know, that can help with shipping of trial agents like World Courier and there's um, alert systems that, that can be put in place to to help with the navigation and to help prepare the sites. Um, and that that can be done through generative AI even quite easily. Then I think the, the key question is about, um, you know, having that one phone call or one phone number that patients can call from a, um, not even a smartphone, but from a basic telephone to to report any adverse events. So that risk mitigation plan is in place, even if Wi-Fi or other types of technology power outages occur. I think that's that's essential for that to be reported in real time. And for that, if there is an adverse event, then that can be mapped to a, a referral pathway located where the patient is at that time. So. So I think um, those are the key elements, starting with the risk assessment and, you know, being able to um, remind and navigate the patient to to how how to continue care. Is that helpful? So that, you- it's very helpful, actually,
1: and thank you for bringing up how to mitigate for um, communication outages. And I wanted to go there a little bit more. Do you have examples or do you know how people have been managing that in conflict zones? And I'm gonna say actually a big earthquake would be a lot like a conflict zone. We would lose cellular electricity, access to cash, all that stuff. So how have you seen that play out? And do you have any uh, insights from how people have been navigating those situations?
3: Yes. Uh, So actually, mobile phones have been have been the way a simple text and then having people um, have a number that they can that they can reach at 24 seven. So that that has been one solution. There's been some chat bots that were deployed. And then when certain words are used, it's escalated to a, a human that can help with the navigation. So um, those are some examples. In Ukraine, they had Starlink technology, which helped them maintain Wi-Fi and actually allowed for a lot of the trials to continue connectivity through Starlink. Uh, they, They had the rail system, which was how they transferred patients from one site within country to another or also out to Poland. I think a multilateral partner could also be Germany. They they took in 54 or so Ukrainian patients in 2022 and have a framework for for also for including participants from other countries in clinical trials. Outside of the clinical trial space, hospitals are thinking about how to have connectivity engagement with the patients. There are examples in California and Texas in natural disasters, and and it does come back to this very simple mobile phone in the event of extreme blood pressure or the the types of adverse events that we really need to um, have the patient have an evacuation route get to a local facility or have have care delivered to them where they are. Um, There's some examples, if we go to the Commonwealth Fund website of day to day clinical care where these these types of tools have been implemented and and uh, different states have implemented a few different standards. But I think one one sort of umbrella item that has to be in the tool bag, in the go bag, is is a telephone number. Thank you so much.
1: That's very, very helpful. I appreciate it.
0: We only have just a couple of uh, minutes remaining here. If there are any other questions in the room, feel free to jump up on stage. I see our friend, Ann Tradcliffe dropped a question in the chat. Would love to see a risk assessment on every study. Do we already have a framework developed somewhere in industry that could be a standard for this? Um, I should note that um, Aditi's links that she dropped in the chat, we've also thrown onto LinkedIn, um, knowing that some of you may be in the car, you may be listening on the podcast replay, so we'll make sure that those are available. A DT for for friends like Angela that are thinking about uh, standards or templates. Here, are there any other great resources you can point to? Let me see.
3: Um, I might have to add them to the chat when I come across a few more. The the Harvard Chan School has been thinking about some resources for day-to-day clinical care and practice that could be adapted for clinical trials, but outside of the FDA framework and the EMA guidelines, there are not specific frameworks for clinical trials yet, but I'm optimistic. We know that it's possible. Now it is coming together to have all the voices included, and I really appreciated Nelson and Archana's comments on um, their perspective. I think we could start to create a framework that can be shared, but I don't I'm not familiar with one that is out there as of yet.
0: Sounds like an opportunity and some great resources already that you know you've already shared, and I'm sure we'll be able to get some more distributed to folks both who are in this room in the chat, but also more broadly. Uh, through different social channels. So folks definitely should uh, stay tuned on that topic. Jane, Amir, any other last words before we wrap up for this week?
1: I would propose that this is the topic for the next diversity circle, um, aligned with what Aditi was saying, and maybe we start whiteboarding. What goes in the go bag for your clinical trial?
0: I like that image.
2: Great, and I agree this is a very important topic. I'm sure we'll be coming
0: back to it. Beautiful. Uh, links that were shared will be also be included in the show notes for those listening via podcast. And if you want to mark your calendar for next week on the live gathering here on Clubhouse Friday at 12, we'll be talking about some artificial intelligence use cases. We're going to pick up on a webinar that Jane was a part of the other week. Uh, so that session will include our friends Gil Bash and Ritesh Patel uh, from Finn Partners. Always some colorful and interesting perspective when we bring uh, either one of those individuals into the show. Having them both, Jane, uh, I think we have to get ready for some really interesting conversation.
1: Well, and I think at least Ritesh will be hot out of JPM, where I'm sure he's going to see some more use cases.
0: <laughs> Sounds perfect. Aditi, thank you as always for some great conversation here this week and all of your thought around, well, around the go bag. And Nelson, Archna, it's always great to hear your voices. Happy New Year to you all. And thanks for joining in this week's conversation. We'll see you next week, or at least hear you. Maybe it's gonna be me. Maybe it's gonna be a chatbot that uh, Ritesh is working on in the background. We'll find out next week. Thanks everybody.
4: Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks,
0: take care.